Good morning. It's great to see you here this morning. We have a lot of visitors. We appreciate your presence. I hope that you'll come back to be with us again if you ever get the opportunity. Uh, If you want to get out your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 15, that's where the the lesson will be coming from this morning. Uh, I wanted to just announce briefly that the... uh, The meeting is coming up. Uh, We have a meeting scheduled with Bill Hall from October 6th through the 11th. Uh, And if any of you are around and you can make it, we'd love to have you with us. Uh, It's going to be an excellent uh, series of sermons from from Bill Hall about uh, trusting in God, the God that we can trust. And uh, I'm I'm looking forward to that. I love love listening to Bill. He always makes it so simple uh, and is, is very encouraging and uplifting when he's here. One of the things that uh, many of the men had mentioned to me whenever I first came here, uh, I asked them, you know, what do, what, do you, what do you see the church here being like in five years? What, what would it be like if it was ideal? What, what would you hope that this congregation would become in the next five, ten years? Uh, and the repeated theme that I received was uh, that we would be evangelistic. Uh, that, that that was the goal. The desire is that we would be a group of people who are focused uh, on the outside, focused on those who are lost, and, and bringing those who are lost back into the fold. Uh, so what I wanted to do this morning is to look at one of the main texts that I think we should go to to be thinking about these kinds of things, thinking about evangelism, and that is Luke 15. Luke 15 uh, is an excellent text for this because it helps us to think about what hinders us from evangelizing. A lot of times uh, we get into this kind of funk where we're just not evangelizing like we should or we're not effective at, at the evangelism that we're entering into and trying to, to lead others to the, to the Lord. And I think, uh, I think we've all been there. Uh, that's, that's a very common reality for us. Uh, But in Luke 15, what we find from Jesus is some words that help us understand what's going on, what may be going on inside of us. Now, there may be a lot of things that are going on that are preventing us from being very evangelistic, but here he provides us with a few things for us to consider and for us to think about this morning. So I hope that uh, you'll study this with me. To begin with, uh, we notice in Luke chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So, to begin with, we see Jesus having tax collectors, sinners, Pharisees, and scribes around him. And the tax collectors and sinners have drawn near, but the Pharisees and scribes are looking at this as a reason for neglecting Jesus, not following Jesus, rejecting him. And they're saying that Jesus loves sinners. Now that's interesting. You know, Jesus loves sinners. Well, that's not really a good thing. I mean, sometimes we'll look at that and we'll just kind of say that flippantly, but... Uh, to, to be around people who are bad influences on us, typically, we're not okay with that. Uh, and here's Jesus, who's around tax collectors and sinners, and, and we can kind of understand the perspective of the Pharisees and the scribes. But if we take out the chapter division and we see who these tax collectors and sinners are, we, we're opened up to the idea that it's not just any tax collectors and sinners. If you go back to chapter 14, we see Jesus loves these sinners for a very specific reason. Back in chapter 14, he has just spoken to a great crowd that has accompanied him. In verse uh, 27, he said, 
Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then he said in verse 33, If anyone does not renounce all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. And then at the end, uh, at the, at the last verse, verse 35, he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So here's Jesus' message to everybody. Uh, you must take up your cross and follow me, and you must renounce all that you have. He said, you must hate your mother, your father, your brother, your sister. We're not going to get into all, what all that means. But basically he's saying, everything else has to come after me. I must be first. And you must be willing to take up your cross and follow me. Now, if anyone has ears to hear, you need to hear what I've just spoken to you. And verse 1 says, the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear him. These are not just people who are living flippantly rebellious lives. These are people who have lived rebellious lives, but now they're drawing near to hear more about what Jesus has to say after he said some of the most difficult things that we find in Scripture. That's who is drawing near to hear. Yes, they are tax collectors and sinners, but they have a desire to change. But what we see is that the Pharisees are struggling with accepting the tax collectors and the sinners. Uh, what is it that's, that's stopping them from, from doing this? What's, what's causing them to struggle with accepting these people in? Well, we're going to see that as we continue throughout this chapter and be thinking about what hinders us from evangelizing to people like this. You know, I don't like to say that we're like Pharisees. Uh, a lot of times people out in the world will look at us and call us Pharisees, and a lot of times they're being Pharisees as they're looking at us and calling us Pharisees. But there are important lessons that we can learn from these Pharisees and from how Jesus approaches these Pharisees as we look at ourselves and consider maybe the reason why we're not effective at evangelizing is because we resemble the Pharisees and the scribes in some way, as they are religious leaders uh, in the community. So we need to think about these things as Jesus uh, approaches them. In the next, in the rest of the chapter, Jesus lays out for uh, everyone three parables to consider. Uh, and these are very known parables, and I imagine uh, you've heard of all of them before, the most notable being the prodigal son. Uh, but, but I'd like to kind of summarize these and then think about what we, are, what we can learn from these as Jesus has spoken these in this exact scenario uh, that we just read about. So first of all, we read about the parable of a shepherd who finds a lost sheep. The shepherd has lost one, he's looked out at his hundred sheep and said, ah, oh, one of my sheep is missing. And he has decided, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave the 99 in the open country. And, he, and Jesus says, what man of you would not leave the 99 in the open country and go out and search until he finds his lost sheep? And when he finds it, he's going to lay it on his shoulder and he's going to be celebrating and rejoicing and he's going to be bringing it back for everybody to rejoice with him over the one sheep that was lost and that is now found. And then he, he, he gives them another parable in verse 8. Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not search diligently in her house, sweeping the house, lighting a lamp, to find the lost coin. And when she finds it, she celebrates and she invites all her friends and all her family in uh, to celebrate with her. And then the third parable we call the parable of the, the prodigal son, which is not really 
what it is. It's the parable of a father and his two sons. That's, that's more appropriate understanding of what goes on in this parable. In this final parable here, what we see is uh, an added dimension to the first two. In the first two, you have a shepherd who's seeking what's lost. You have a woman who's seeking what's lost. You have these seekers. But in this parable, we find the perspective of, of, of the, the one who is lost and the one who's and found, and the, also the 99 who never goes astray. So we get all three perspectives in this parable as we study it. So what we see is the father has, a, has two sons, and, and the younger son comes up to him, and you know this parable. The younger son says, Father, give me my inheritance. So he's going to get a third of all that the father owns. And that's not normal. <laughs> Typically, the inheritance doesn't come until after the father dies. Then it's split up. But he wants it early, and you kind of get a sense something's wrong here. And so the father divides up his inheritance between his two sons. And the younger son takes his inheritance and he runs off into a foreign land and he lives the way he wants to live. He's reckless, he's prodigal, he does whatever he wants to do. And then a famine hits in the land and, uh-oh, all the money's run out. So what am I going to do now? Well, he has to find a job working for somebody who's a foreigner feeding their sheep. Now, the Jews, sheep are unclean animals, so this is not uh, a good job. This is like the worst job that he could get. And so he's, he's sitting there feeding the sheep, and he's so hungry, he wishes he could eat what the sh what not sheep the pigs sorry I've said sheep the whole time he's feeding he's feeding pigs pigs are the unclean animal and he's seeing the food that's being offered to the pigs and he's saying servants in my father's house are eating better than this and here I am wishing I could eat the food of the the pigs uh, that are before me the unclean pigs and so he he comes to himself and he says I will go to my father's house. And I will tell him, Father, I have sinned before heaven and earth and, and in, in your sight. And, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. If you'll just make me one of your servants, I would, be, I would be so happy if you could do that for me. And so he goes. And the father sees him from afar and he goes to him. And he embraces him and he smothers him with kisses. And then the son starts to say everything. Father, I have sinned before heaven and earth. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father interrupts and says, bring me the best robe. Bring me the, 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 the signet ring and put it on his hand. And bring shoes to put on his feet. He doesn't even have shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead, but he's now alive. He was lost and he is found, and they began to celebrate. But the story doesn't end there, right? There's, there's another perspective. The older brother has been out working in the field. And he comes back, and he's starting to draw near, and he hears this celebrating and all this dancing, and, and he asks the servant, you know, what's going on here? And the servant tells him, your brother has returned. And he's like, oh. So we're throwing a party for my brother who wasted his inheritance. Oh, okay. Uh, so the, the father comes out to him and, and tries to plead with him, come in, enjoy your, your brother's back. And the brother re rejects him and says, no, I'm not going to do that. He says, look, these many years I have served you. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, 
who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fatted calf for him. And then the father responds, Son, you're always with me. All that is mine is yours. It's fitting for us to celebrate and be glad. Your brother was dead, and now he's alive. He was lost, and now he's found. We know this parable, and the, the emotions uh, just stir up in us, just thinking about and, and understanding all that is in this parable. But let's think about what we learn from these parables, and specifically the last parable that's kind of the crescendo of all of this. As, as he's speaking these parables, remember that these are being spoken so that the Pharisees and the scribes might understand why he is accepting the sinners and the, the tax collectors. Remember that. That's a very important point to consider. Uh, because whenever we look at this and we see this older brother, we start to see some similarities in the way that the older brother acts and in the way that the Pharisees and the scribes are acting. There's some correlation there. A lot of times we think of the parable of the prodigal son, and we're just thinking about the prodigal son and how great it is that the father sought him. But the point of this parable is more so focused on the older brother and how he is missing it. How he's not understanding what's happening here. He's struggling to overcome certain obstacles. There are hindrances that are keeping him from accepting his younger brother into the fold and, and to rejoice with the father over that which is lost being found. I want to think about three hindrances that we see very clearly laid out in his response to the father. Look at verse 29. He answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Pause. These many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. This brother has been diligently serving his father. He's been doing everything that the father has ever asked him to do without any complaining, without ever doing anything wrong. You believe that? <laughs> uh, well, you know, the picture here is of one who is self-righteous. I've never done anything wrong ever in your sight that you've had to forgive me. And, and that's the way that he looks at himself. He's, he's obeyed his father. He's done good. He's not been as bad as his brother. And he's comparing it and saying... I, I'm, I'm, I'm the perfect son. I'm the good son. I'm the golden child. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not disobeying you and rebelling against you. I'm not squandering what you've given me. But in all of this, we see that he's not obeying the Father out of a love for his Father, but he's obeying his Father out of a love for himself because he likes to be the obedient child. He likes to be the golden child. Now, those of us with siblings don't know anything about this, right? We, we know, we've been there. Uh, if you're the golden child, it's a nice thing. It feels good. But... To have this attitude in himself that I am good, I am righteous, and I have done nothing wrong that, deserve, that needed your forgiveness. He's just made a list of, of sins that, that he hasn't committed without considering all the sins that he has. He's got a list of permissible sins. That, that Oh sure, the Father would forgive me for these, right? 
He's sinned. Everybody's sinned. He's made mistakes. He's rebelled against his father. He's tested his father before. And yet he's sitting here acting like he's never done anything wrong. How easy is that for all of us to do? As we work on ourselves, as we grow, as we develop as Christians, and we, we overcome so many sins in our lives to become holy and pleasing to God as best as we possibly can, it's really easy to get into this, I've overcome all these sins, and if you don't, then I'm better than you. <laughs> but, you know, there's all these sins that God doesn't really care about. There's, there's all kinds of sins that we'll say are permissible, that's no big deal, but God's not okay with those either. How many times have we thought, I'm not as bad as him or her because I don't do the sins that they do. But by committing sin, we fall short of the glory of God. We're, we're becoming self-righteous as we think this way, as we consider ourselves to be good and righteous and perfect in comparison to someone else. And there's this tendency inside of us to reject the sinner because of our own self-righteousness and our fear of being impure and being corrupted by those who, who are obviously sinners. And you see this in these Pharisees and scribes as they're looking at a tax collector collector and a sinner, and they're the religious people, and they're saying, I'm better than you. I'm more righteous than you are. This is hindering them from evangelizing, and it can hinder us as well. We must be humble instead of self-righteous. There's not a person here worthy of the grace that we have been given. So instead of comparing ourselves with others and thinking much of ourselves, we have to think of others with a care for their soul and an understanding that they're struggling with sin just like we are. And maybe there's something we can do to help them in their struggle as we've found help for ourselves. That's the attitude the Pharisees and the scribes should have had, but they didn't because they were too self-righteous. So we must be on guard against this because it will affect our evangelism. The second thing we see is that the, the second half of verse 29, he says, you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. <laughs> Do you sense the jealousy in this older brother? Uh, his, he has this desire to be uh, glorified, to, to be uh, made much of, and to, to, to receive great uh, honor and blessings from the Father. And, and he's pursuing the stuff, right? He wants that young goat to be offered for him. He wants to have a party. He wants to be enjoyed and appreciated. And so he's, he's looking at those things, and he's completely forgetting about his younger brother. He's so focused on what he can get for himself that he doesn't see his younger brother who has been lost, who has been dead. And he's not worried about him or concerned about him. Instead, he's worried that the younger brother is going to come back and he's going to take more of what's now his. Right? The inheritance has been divided up. The older brother has two-thirds of the inheritance. That fattened calf belongs to him. And that's probably more so the way he's looking at this. Thinking about what's it going to cost me to have this guy come back. And he's afraid that, that this is a waste of resources. This is a waste of my money. This is a waste of my time. This is a foolish thing to do. You might have heard the old saying, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, 
You ain't going to fool me again. That's George Bush's version. Uh, You ain't going to fool me again. I'm not going to be fooled the second time because I don't want to be made a fool. That's the picture that that we have of this, this brother that he doesn't want to be taken advantage of. He wants to have his stuff for himself and it's his. How often have we been distracted by our worldly pursuits? How often have those pursuits uh, kept us from pursuing the lost souls that are around us? How often have we failed to see the value of the lost soul that is in our presence and looked at them and said, this is a person that will one day stand before the judgment seat of God and love them and cared for them enough to help them. If someone were like these tax collectors and sinners, would we be excited about them possibly making a change and be hoping that that, that is actually what's happening? That, 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 is, that God has done something or said something to, to influence them, to prick their heart, to cause a change? We can get so focused on ourselves that we don't even see the spiritual battle that's taking place inside of that person. As, as Satan is trying to take them and God is trying to get them back to him. And instead of becoming instruments of God, we can become instruments of Satan as we reject them and we deliver them uh, to Satan to, to, to enjoy his ways rather than coming back to God. We need to be focused on the severe needs of those around us. And that means that as, as we see people around us who are struggling and who are in need, that we speak to them. And we need to speak to those around us who we know are struggling. We need to speak to visitors who come in. And if they're struggling, we need to get to know them. We need to interact with them and try to help them and bring them into the fold. And it may mean that we lose valuable time. We lose valuable money. And it may mean that it's a complete waste of our time and a complete waste of our money. But we don't know it. And God wants them to be brought back in to the fold. So we need to seek them and go after them and not be distracted. The third, the third hindrance for evangelism is forgiveness. Notice the brother says in verse 30, But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. This older brother looks at his younger brother and the way that he lives, and he is just disgusted with him. Disgusted. And and he's drawn a line and said, there's no way you can be forgiven because you have crossed that line. There's no coming back to the father. There's no coming back to this family. But the father hadn't drawn that line. The father is willing to accept the younger brother back in spite of all the sins that he's committed against the father. The older brother is not. We can't make the assumption that someone is too far gone. Somebody's beyond uh, repentance and turning their, their minds and their hearts back to serve the Lord. We must be open to the fact that they can, they can come back to the Lord. They can be forgiven. There's an internal resistance in us sometimes when we see somebody who we know is a sinner. Maybe it's somebody who's personally sinned against us. This is a tax collector. Okay? And these tax collectors are funding the Roman army that has murdered and raped thousands of Jews. 
You think that the Pharisees and scribes are justified in hating them <laughs> and thinking that they are evil, evil people? I mean, they're traitors. They've done some despicable things. And the Pharisees love money anyway, so they're really upset about this. But you see how they, they just, they got this line, you've crossed it, you've sided with the enemy, there's no coming back now, you cannot be forgiven. And if we're not careful, we can have the same kind of tendency that those who have offended us are not able to come back into the fold. Well, can you imagine the shepherd bringing his sheep, rejoicing, back into the fold, and then the 99 sheep trampling it, <laughs> devouring it? Can you imagine that happening? Because you ran away. You're not part of us. What a horrible thing for us to do. That God would be willing to accept them and that, that we would reject them because we can't forgive. Well, the perspective of the older son is the main point of the story. But it's not everything. There's also the, the, the father and there's the younger son. So the father, as we look at the father, what, what do you notice about the father? Do you see how he looks at this younger son and he has a great joy that he has come back to him? Well, actually, that's the God throughout all Scripture. That's the God of the Old Testament. That's the God of the New Testament. That's the God everywhere. That God just wants His people to come back to Him. No matter how far gone they've been, He over and over again says, If you'll just turn to Me, I will rejoice over you. In Zephaniah, he says, I will sing over you. That's the way God looks at those who are lost, that He just wants them to come back to seek Him and to find Him, because He finds no joy in the death of the wicked. He says it three times in the book of Ezekiel. There's no joy in the death. I take no joy in the death of the wicked, but I would rather that they return to me. Now, Ezekiel's a book written during a time that he's bringing about the, the, the Babylonians to destroy his people. Ezekiel's in exile, and three times the Babylonians come in to destroy his people. And Ezekiel's there saying, I just want you to come back to me. I don't want to destroy you. Over and over again. And in chapter 34, we see the same image that Jesus gave us in that God is this shepherd who is reaching out to rescue his sheep and trying to bring them back into the fold. And in chapter 36 he says he wants to give them a new heart and a new spirit. He wants to make them like this prodigal son who turns back to the father and sees the folly of rejecting the father's way. That's what God wants to see more than anything else. That's His purpose. That's His desire. So we must all come to that realization. We must all humbly come to the Father realizing where we have fallen short and submitting to the Father and saying, I am not worthy to be called your son. Please make me a hired servant. That's what the tax collectors are doing. That's what the sinners are doing. And that's what we must also do. So how can we seek the lost? How can we not be like the Pharisees and the scribes? How can we join the Father in pursuing those who are lost and bringing them back into the fold? That's what we want to do, right? Well, first of all, we need to recognize who is the lost. 
in this message. You know, we might think the lost are uh, everybody who doesn't come to church. Or they, we may think it's, it's, it's those who only come once a week. Or we may think uh, that, that it's someone else. But the lost can be someone who comes Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday night. <coughs> Attending services does not make you found. It does not, does not make you uh, desiring to please God. We can, we can come to services three times a week and still have a heart that's rebellious and that's seeking our own will, just like the prodigal son. Now, it may be that there are some who are lost, who stopped coming to services because what's the point? <laughs> I'm coming to services three times a week and my life is really lived doing whatever I want to do. And so they just kind of realized it and so they stopped showing up. That's a lost soul as well. And then there are plenty of people who have never entered the church building who are lost. The lost is anyone who does not have the heart of that prodigal son who is not seeking to please the father after realizing the mistakes that they've made. And this parable gives us an understanding of how we must act toward them. We must be humble instead of self-righteous. We must be focused on their soul's need instead of our distractions. And we must forgive and accept those who would be forgiven and be accepted by God. That's our goal. That's our mission. To, to reach out to the lost, to bring them back into the fold. Now... Maybe there's somebody here who has been coming to services three times a week, one time a week. Maybe this is your first time here. Maybe it's your first time back. I don't know. What's your heart look like? What's your desire? If our desire is not to be pleasing to the Father, we need to make a change. And if, if I realize it, as I'm listening to this, as I'm looking at the way the Father loves those who are lost, and I'm seeing I'm not one of them, but I can be, listen to what the Father said. As the Son came up to Him and said, I'm no longer to be worthy to be called your Son, He said, bring quickly the best robe and put it on Him and put a ring on His hand and shoes on His feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For the son who is dead is alive again. That's the way God looks at you if you turn your heart to come after him. In verse 7 it says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Picture that. As you decide to make a change in your life, as you decide that you're going to please God and serve God with all your heart now, heaven is making loud jubilee, rejoicing, celebrating over you. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? And that can happen. If you know what you need to do and if you have made the decision... What's stopping you? Don't let anything stop you. Please come before it's too late. Please come as we stand and as we sing.